0: Alright, good morning. Good morning. Good to see everyone. Lance patted me on the back and he said uh, that passage that they just read is Strasburg just hit a single. And so uh, I'm an LSU fan, so we go all the way. Let's just put it that way right there. So we're going we're gonna to try to knock this thing out of the park uh, by God's grace. Uh, we will see. Uh, but someone once said, where there is a will, there is a family fighting over it somewhere. Uh, okay, And so I'm not talking about Your willpower this morning, though, in some sense, we will talk about uh, maybe we will get that far, uh, but I'm talking about inheritance. And I think that's what Paul is after in Galatians chapter 3 is inheritance. And it is estimated that $30 trillion will be inherited over the next 30 years here in America. And this means if you are Uh, a part of any family, which we all are, this just means that we are all in for uh, peace and love and hope and joy for the next 30 years because we all know that good things often come with inheritance, right? No, not, not really. The problem isn't the inheritance, right? What is the problem? The problem is often... The people who receive the inheritance. The problem is often the agendas behind the people who are receiving the inheritance and the competing agendas that people and families often have. And when you come to the book of Galatians, it's a lot, it's a lot like peeking into a funeral home. Okay? You're, you're there and in the service. All the family has come together. The aunts and uncles, they haven't really maybe talked or cousins, nephews, uh, brothers, sisters, they haven't really talked, but they come together and there's a sense of unity and there's a sense of, hey, we're together on this. But on the surface, everything seems fine, kind of on the surface as you walk into the church in Galatia. People are hugging and talking about unity and eating together. And, uh, but when it's time to make decisions, when it's time to make decisions, everyone prefaces their statement with, well, it's what he would have wanted. And so you got Uncle Ted saying we should play Guns N' Roses, right? And you got uh, Grandma whatever saying we should do George Beverly Shea, you know? And then you've got just trying to figure out how does all this happen? And then you're just thinking, oh my goodness, I hope there's a will because trying to lead this funeral here is just an absolute mess because everyone has opinions of what he would have wanted, right? And you just hope that... The deceased had left a will with everything spelled out in black and white. And uh, maybe none of you have ever had to face those kinds of things. And praise God if you haven't. When you look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, what you see is this language of inheritance. Look in Galatians three eighteen with me. For if the inheritance comes by the law. Okay, so there it is. There's a the language, inheritance. But before that... Do you see the very first word in chapter 3, verse 18? What is it? For. That means what he's saying right now is the basis of everything else that has come before in chapter 3. Everything thus far is based on what he's saying right here. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. This is picked up from verse 14. If you just kind of lift your eyes a few verses earlier in verse 14, Galatians 3, 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive. So what is this inheritance? It's the the idea that there's a blessing of Abraham that's going to come and people are going to receive it. Okay, so you've got Uh, inheritance language peppered all throughout this little section here of Scripture. And of course, Paul is going to end chapter 3 with chapter 3, verse 29. And he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's, what? Offspring, heirs, according to promise. So there's inheritance language again. Now, we're going to start in verse 15 today, and we're going to try to make our way through verse 22 But this whole context is shaped by this idea of an inheritance and receiving something of value. So what it means is we're on the level of family here. This is family language. And the reason why we know this is because look in verse 15. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers. That's not a throwaway word. This sentence would make perfect sense if it was to give a human example and then let me give you an example. But what's he doing? He's appealing to them on the basis of family here. So everything he is saying here, he wants to emphasize this idea of family and inheritance. So here's the question. What exactly is this inheritance? If all of this is about inheritance, what exactly is this inheritance? Look back in verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14. And let's just let the Bible give us the answers to our questions. So that in Christ Jesus, what is it that comes to the Gentiles? The blessing of Abraham. Okay, well that's very clear. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So God promised Abraham that God would bless him and that he would create a family through him and he would bless that family and that family would be a blessing to the nations. And that's why Paul says in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to who? Gentiles, right? There's a lot that can be said here, but I think the easiest way to wrap your mind around what this, this inheritance is, is found in chapter 5, verse 21. So if you just look in chapter 5, verse 21, or we can throw it up on the screen here, but Paul uses this exact language of inherit again. Chapter 5, verse 21. What does he say? Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warn you before, that those who do such things will not, what? Inherit, inherit what? The kingdom of God. Okay, so now we're getting closer on what is this inheritance. And just think with me. Think, when Jesus shows up on the scene, if, if you know anything or if you've heard anything um, of the Bible at all or about Jesus, you know he shows up and he stands on a mountain and, he's, and, and the people come to him and he sits down and he says what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Blessed are those. And he goes on and on. He gives like nine or ten of them. On and on and on. So when Jesus shows up and he's standing on a mountain, much like Moses, and he he says what? Blessed. Blessed. Blessed are those. That should cause in your mind, hey, this is connected to what? Abraham. Jesus is connecting and he's bringing in these promised blessings that would come to Abraham and his offspring. And Jesus is not just saying, hey, let me tell you how to have your best life now. No, he's fulfilling all of this history that has been taking place. And he's standing there and he's saying, the blessings of Abraham are taking place right now before you. And here's how to be a part of it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? What? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn for what? Mourn for the coming of the kingdom of God. Because they're going to be comforted because Jesus is here now and he's able to give the kingdom. And then what does he say? Blessed are the meek, and what but why? Why are the, why are the meek blessed? Look, Matthew chapter 5, throw it up there. Matthew chapter, this is too important just to assume. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The poor in spirit parallels to meek, and the inheriting the kingdom parallels to inheriting the earth. Right? So I take it then, all this to say, that inheriting the kingdom of God is like taking possession of the earth. That's a big deal. That's a lot more than inheriting and owning the little 6,000-square-foot lot you've got in Pecan Grove. That's more than $30 trillion over 30 years. This is inheriting the land. It's like a new exodus where you're brought out of slavery and you're brought to a land and this is how Paul begins, does he not? Think about, think about the context of Galatians. Think about how Paul began. when we went, How long have we been in Galatians? I don't know, several weeks. What does he say in Galatians 1, verse 3 and 4? Flip back and you'll see this. This is all that Paul has been saying this entire time. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. All right, we'll start in 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to what? Deliver us. Right? He's bringing us out of slavery and into a promised land. He's delivering us from this present evil age. And how is Paul going to end Galatians? Look at what he says in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but what counts? New creation." This is nothing new. This is what Paul has been talking about to this church this whole time. The whole time. Holt missed out fire here. The whole time. This is is what Paul has been getting out there is our inheritance is nothing less than inheriting the earth. And it it comes through Jesus of Nazareth. So let me kind of maybe put this a little more handles on here. Here's the inheritance. Think about last week. Cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. What is the inheritance? Blessing, not curse. Life and righteousness. Knowing God and what Paul's gonna say later on, not just that you know God, but that you've come to be known by God. That you, would be, that you would know and that you would be known in this kingdom. The kingdom of God is like finally coming home to the way things all ought to be Right? And you're going to experience that come Thanksgiving when Uncle Ted starts talking about his favorite political thing, and you're like, this is not the way that family ought to be sitting around a table debating politics and ethnicity and policies. Right? We should be enjoying one another, knowing each other, and being known. And Paul says, This is what the kingdom of God is like. It's being inheriting into that. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you... Oh, no, I'll take circumcision. Oh, okay, well. No, thank you. Right? If you can understand this idea of inheritance in terms of inheriting the earth or remaining in the land, then here's why you can understand these people who are in Galatia causing these problems in this church. These people in Galatia are coming and saying, yes, the Messiah has come. He's Jesus of Nazareth. That's well and good. That's fine. You can have Jesus. But you also really need to remember that you need to keep the Sabbath. Everything that marks us out as ethnic Israel, everything that marks us out as Jews, you need to keep those things, the Sabbath, circumcision. So have Jesus, but add all these other things as well. And that's what it means to, that's how you'll really inherit the earth. And, and, and. And the reason why they say this is because last time that Israel was not in the land, they were exiled. And where were they exiled to? Babylon. And why were they exiled to Babylon? Because they disobeyed God and they followed after idols. They broke his law. And so for these people to come in and hear Paul say, the inheritance doesn't come through the law. They're thinking, no, Babylon was really bad. We don't want to go back to Babylon. Let's just take Jesus and keep this law here. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. We're throwing all our chips on Jesus. All of it, make no mistake. The law was not made to make you right with God. The law was made to point you to Jesus, to whom you put all of your chips and hopes in. Because that exile was bad, man. Read the book of Lamentations. It's bad. So I can understand in some sense why these people would come and say, hey, we need to add these things. But Paul is saying, no, if, if you do that, you don't truly understand what the Old Testament has really been all about this entire time. So Paul, then, let's ask the question, how does this inheritance come and you can see these two competing viewpoints in verse 18. Look again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 18. And you can just kind of imply what's going on here. For the inheritance comes, for if the inheritance, Paul says, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So you've got on one side... one. One group of people are saying, hey, it comes by the law. And Paul's saying, no, it comes by promise. So by the time that Israel is released from Babylon after exile, they say we're never going back to exile. And here's how we're going to make sure that we inherit the land. Here's how we make sure that we're going to stay in our little Palestinian section here and we're not going to be exiled out to Babylon. Here's how we're going to make sure that we stay in the land. We're going to follow the laws of Moses, but in order to make sure we don't break the laws of Moses, we're going to build a fence around that law of Moses To make sure that before you could ever break the law of Moses, you have to break other laws first. And next thing you know, they've got 611 some odd laws. And they've got all these crazy laws and laws and laws. And it's like, hey man, are, are we here to know God or are we just trying not to go to hell? These people who have crept into the church at Galatia and bewitched the church are like people at a funeral pushing their own agendas. And that is if we can establish a strong ethnic Israel without, and sure the Gentiles can come in, but let's make sure that they're all circumcised. They all keep the Sabbath. They all keep the food laws. Let's make sure they conform to our image. If we make sure that they bring, and there's no uncircumcised Gentiles, then that's what God would have wanted. So let's just have Jesus and the law. And to prove their point, what they do is they then say to Paul, they bring out the reason why they ended up in exile to begin with the law of Moses. And I can imagine Paul pipes up and he says this, brothers, God has not left us to debate as far as what he would have wanted. He has made it very clear. He has written it in black and white, so to speak. He's actually spelled out how the inheritance comes. It's quite clear. And Paul is going to start with, not with scripture, uh, we were joking earlier. He's been throwing all these theological things and he's like, okay, well, let me now reason with you just as a human being. Just use a human example. And look in verse 15, look what he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, this is the hard part in our culture. You and I hear covenant and we think contract. We think I'll sign up for my cell phone, but if I'm not happy, I'll get out of it. I'll buy a house and if I'm not happy with it, I'll amend it, I'll make changes. Or I'll marry this person and if I'm not happy, I'll add terms to it that I didn't previously agree to and if those aren't met, I'm out. Maybe that's why our relationships are so watered down here, because we look for loopholes. But Paul is not talking about a covenant with loopholes. In the ancient Near Eastern society, Paul's words made much more sense. Let me read to you, this is a text from a, a, a covenant that was made. And this is not... From the Bible, this is just using a, a, a man made example here from their day and time of a covenant. This is from northern Syria, and it says, This is the head, this is not the head of a lamb, it's the head of Matalu. If Matalu sins against this treaty, so may, just as the head of this spring lamb is torn off, the head of Matalu be torn off and his son. So you got a guy here, he's holding a head of a lamb. Right here. And he's saying, "This is the head of Matalu. If you break this covenant, this is going to happen to your head and your son." Oh, okay. Well, that's not going to show up on any news media here. Right. That is a serious covenant. You don't break that type of covenant. But yet this is the type of covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15. Do you know the story? Do you know the story in Genesis 15? Abraham has, has a deep sleep and uh, it, it, there, there are carcasses torn um, between uh, Abraham and God and the carcasses are on the ground and God walks between those carcasses. Only God, not Abraham. And the meaning is Abraham, I'm promising to bless you and I'm promising this inheritance and I'm promising all these things and if I don't give them to you, me, God himself, may I be torn apart like these carcasses. Hmm. We don't have a category for that type of commitment. We live in a culture of FOMO, right? Right? I'm going to commit to you, but all of a sudden, you know, my kid's got a 99-degree temp, and I hope you don't check Facebook because I'm going to go out to eat somewhere else, right? I mean, like, that's, that we, we just, we don't understand what this is, but the Bible talks so much differently about relationships and commitment than our consumeristic culture ever even dreams of. And Paul says, you know what? If an everyday example isn't enough, Let me just try to borrow here from general revelation, from culture. If that's not enough for you, then let's just think about the way in which God has worked in history. Here's an easy question. This should actually spell it out literally in black and white how God has moved history throughout. Who came first? Abraham or Moses? Who was born first? Who's older? Abraham or Moses? Abraham. There you go. Great, we all passed. Congratulations. No one's going to be like, who bewitched you? You know? (laughs) So this is, (laughs) you've got to love Galatians, right? Anyone, Jewish or not, religious or not, can look at a history book and see that Abraham came before Moses. And if Abraham came before Moses, then what came first? Promise or law? Promise. So then you interpret the law in light of the promise, not the promise in light of the law. Abraham came first. Look in Galatians 3.17. Paul continues on. We're going to skip verse 16. We'll come back to it. This, Paul finally is clear for us. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years after does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Let's just, just stop right here. And just think. Just stop right here and think. Abraham to Moses, 430 years. 430 years. Imagine how patient God was with those people between that time period for 430 years when they did not live their life in light of the promise. How patient. God was with them when he could have just consumed them for breaking covenant but he didn't because he stuck to his promise and think about this with me when Israel's delivered from Egypt does God come to them and say here's the 10 commandments follow these 10 commandments and I'll get you out of Egypt no 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 what what happens He delivers them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He sets them free, and then what happens? He gives them the law. So it's not, follow the law, and you'll get out of slavery. It's, I brought you out. Now, here's here's what it means to live in light of my promise. Here's the depths of my promise. So, if inheritance comes by promise then what's all this law stuff about? I, I read this and i was just saying, that's, that's a great question. If you're asking yourself, why then the law, then you understand what Paul is getting after here. Well, what, what's up with all, all these years of sacrifices and regulations on what to eat and how to wear your clothes and uh, how to be clean and what's up with all these? Why then the law? And Paul says, look at his answer here in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now this next part is illuminating. It's confusing as all get out. But it's illuminating nonetheless. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary or a mediator. Now, an intermediator, see, I can't even say it. An intermediator, someone who mediates, implies more than one. But God is one. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying if you really look at the law, if you really want to look at Moses, if you really stop and think about God put the law of Moses in the hands of Moses through angels, then you'd you would understand that the law is meant to show you just how much you need God's promise of covenant faithfulness. The law came 430 years after the promise not to change things up. In fact, Paul makes this really obscure statement in chapter 3, verse 20. I couldn't even say it. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I'm I'm baffled exactly how that fits together, how those two sentences. Uh, So lance at thegrovechurch.net. You can email your pastor. It's what you pay him for, uh, and he will explain that to you. But I think, here's my stab at it. If you look in the context, I think what Paul's saying is, don't you dare pit Moses against Abraham God is one he's not changing things don't you dare pit Moses and Abraham against each other because look what he says in verse 21 is the law then contrary to the promises of God certainly not so I think what Paul means in verse 20 is don't pit the problem is not between Moses and Abraham you know what the problem is you my transgressions me the problem is not between those it's 430 years God's not like hey you know what they only sin for about 2 years 430 years I, if I could live that long I would sin for 430 years the problem is me It's not the law. The law is right and good and holy. The problem is me, and the law shows the depths of God's promise. As N.T. Wright says, The law was a quarantine regulation, important and healthy in itself, but a steady reminder that all the human race, including the family of Abraham, was sinful. And it was in place, doing that job, right up to the time when God finally fulfilled the promise. Here's what John Bunyan said, Run and work the law demands, but gives neither feet nor hands. A sweet sound the gospel brings, it gives me wings and bids me fly. You see, the law could never give you the power to obey God. The law was set there to push you, to push you to the gospel, to push you to Jesus, to say, you can't do this. You could never live up to all these laws. You could never have uh, the, the right morality. You could never have the perfection. It, the inheritance would never come through your work. Don't misunderstand the role of the law. It was never meant to give life it has a different purpose it was meant to push you to the one who can give and who does actually give life these teachers are acting as if the single greatest moment in history is when someone is circumcised. And Paul says, no, the single greatest moment in history is when Jesus was cut on the cross, literally torn to shreds by the wrath of God for your covenant unfaithfulness. You see, both the law and the promise. God is one. Both the law and the promise are about faith. You're going to trust yourself or you're going to trust the one to whom the law points? And only when you trust the promise will you be able to face what the law demands. Look in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings. Plural. Referring to many, the law, the promises this whole time, we're referring to one, and to your offspring, who is who? Christ. It's Jesus. Which means when you read the Old Testament, when you want to understand Moses, when you want to understand Abraham, you can't understand them fully until you get to Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who inherits the promises of God. He is the one whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. You can't possibly understand what God was doing in history with Abraham until you get to Jesus of Nazareth. Abraham, like Moses, were both history pointers to help you know and trust Jesus of Nazareth and so was the law. And if you get Jesus... You don't need anything else. Why? Because he is the offspring. The offspring. Not one of many. He is the offspring. All that had been promised by God, he is the one. And right now, there are four billion people on this earth who follow what we would call an Abrahamic religion. You, You know what those three religions are? Judaism? Christianity, and Islam. All three point to Abraham as a father of the religion. All three of them. Okay? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all are considered Abrahamic religions, and they all see Abraham as foundational to their religion. Judaism and Islam see Jesus as a prophet, but not as the promised one. And the problem with that is that Jesus himself said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to What? Fulfill it. And if you're a prophet and you say that, your job as a prophet is to preach the law, not to fulfill it. And if you say that, you're a false prophet. Unless you really are the promised one to come that the law has been talking about, that the promises of Abraham have been talking about. Prophets don't do that. Prophets proclaim the law and Jesus showed up and he sat on a mountain, much like Moses, and he said, the blessings of Abraham have now come in me. And if you identify with me, then in meekness and in poor in spirit, then you inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're here and you adhere to Judaism or Islam, I ask you to consider that if Abraham and Moses were here right now this morning on this stage, they would look to you and they would say, no, no, no. Righteousness comes not through the law, but through Jesus of Nazareth. And I ask you, if you are here or maybe you have friends who adhere to Islam, I would ask you to consider that long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, who is the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. This is Jesus. Jesus. There's no need to look for another Muhammad to come after Jesus. He is the one to whom the inheritance comes. The promise was to a singular seed, and in that is where you enjoy the blessings. And this Jesus of Nazareth is that seed and what goes even further back if you know the story of the bible the promise to Abraham is about one seed why? because there was a promise when everything went bad everything went bad in, in creation and, and we broke the law of God God comes and he banishes us he kicks us out of the garden right? exile but what does he say? I promise to bring what? through the woman a what? a seed and that seed will crush the head of the serpent. And my friends, if you are here today, Jesus is that promised seed, not only through Abraham, but the promised seed that God made since we all made a debacle of the world. He has crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. Because neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but what? A new creation. What this also means is that there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. The church of Jesus is meant to reflect that reality. That there is no room for establishing and saying one ethnic group is better than another. We might not actually say that, but we might act that way in the way we relate to one another. And Jesus is not Lord over a church that draws lines between ethnic and social Divides tribal geographic lines. We are we are glad and grateful for military service here, but Christianity does not equal America. The promise of what they have been that the Ab- promise of Abraham has been waiting for is that there would be a multi-ethnic nation flowing into Israel. And who is that true Israel? It's Jesus. The nations have come. The inheritance has come. The uh, promise of Abraham has come to the Gentiles because uh, are we not all here gathered around Jesus? The gospel is about the one not the many and we base our identity not on power but on love. For I am crucified with Christ and is no longer I who live but Christ who lives within me and the life which I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who Loved me. You see, the kingdom of God doesn't come through power grabs. And so often, what we want to do is we want to say, okay, yes, we get Jesus, but now we need to make sure we establish ourselves with political power and make sure that we are at the top of the totem pole. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. (laughs) It's not how the kingdom comes. You know who it comes through? It doesn't come. In, In evangelical circles like ours, we might say, our job is to bring the kingdom. No, your job is not to bring the kingdom, your job is to receive the kingdom. Jesus brings the kingdom. The job is to find ourselves as meek and as children. It's far too often. This is what's going on in our churches today. Is that pride has crept in. And it might not be socioeconomic pride. It might be some other type of pride. And what we find in the gospel. Is that in this promised one. The kingdom has come and it includes all those who would ever believe. And when you get to the end of Revelation, when all this is wrapped up, what do you see? You see the kings of the earth bringing in their inheritance. See, the the problem in Galatia is, hey, you need to take Jesus and become Jewish. No, God is one. He has created us, right? And he's given us our differences so that we can bring those in to magnify Christ. I mean, my goodness, how, how, more relation, how much more could this relate to us in one of the most diverse counties in, in the entire world? Fort Bend County. I mean, we ought to be people who seek to see the kingdom of God on display through racial unity and reconciliation. And our answer is not, well, let's just all try to get along. Our answer is Jesus. And this is what it means to know Jesus amongst our differences and to let our preferences go. It means to be meek. And that we would be a church. That we would be a church that reflects that Reality, that God has spelled it out in black and white. So that's ethnically. Let me just say practically. Another practical example. Maybe for your, your own personal growth uh, in spiritual disciplines. You ever pray and just think, this is going really terrible right now. <laughs> you ever pray and just think, This is bad. Like, I don't know if it's getting past the ceiling right now. And my heart feels so far from God. You ever feel that way? No? Okay, I'm the only one. That's great. Great. Good. The times I feel that way, I often look towards my security. I find my security as the one who has performed well enough so that God would hear me. But what this means is if you are united to Christ by faith, there is nothing more secure. You can come to Jesus with groanings too deep for words and say, Abba, Father, isn't that what he's going to get to in Galatians 4? Which we come and we say, Abba, Father, I have no idea what to say to you right now. You know my life is an absolute wreck. I can't seem to obey you. I hate the people I work with. I, I have just messed up and messed up and messed up over and over and over again. But here I am, Lord, And I I take your word that Jesus is this offspring and my security is in him and in him alone. That's faith. That's faith. We put all our chips on Jesus. God has spelled it out in black and white because inheritance does come when there's a will, there's a way and it's because of his way. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for this truth right now. Um, I'm so grateful that uh, Jesus uh, and not the law our identity would be in Him. He would love me and give Himself up for me. Even my arrogance, I pray, Lord, that the truth of the gospel would uh, deepen a meekness in, uh, in our hearts as people. And, uh, Lord, that we would, uh, we would be people marked out not by the flesh and our externals and our performance, that we would be people marked out by one who gave himself for us and loved us. And by Jesus, it's in his name we pray, amen.